Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word today to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, where we be picking up in our study of Luke's Gospel, uh, where we left off. As you turn there, I just want to thank you again for praying uh, for my family. Uh, we got back uh, last evening from Dayton Children's Hospital, where Caroline had her second uh, surgery of the summer, and Lord willing, in less than two weeks, she'll have the third and final one. And so we appreciate your prayers. She is doing well. She rested well. And, uh, and we're very thankful for you praying for us. So as we pick back up in Luke's gospel today and come to the ninth chapter, just as a, a reminder of where we've been, uh, we're now at a point where uh, the question that Luke put forward at the beginning of his gospel, the question that really he's been answering since the beginning of who is Jesus, uh, Jesus himself has now asked that question of his disciples first and asking, uh, who do the people say that I am? And then of asking his disciples, and, and who do you say that I am? And, and Peter uh, steps forward in essence as a spokesman of the disciples and says that Jesus indeed is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He is Lord. And Jesus commends him for making this profession. And yet just after this, if you follow in all the gospel accounts, especially in Mark and Matthew's account, we find that uh, in Jesus then telling Peter and the others that, that not only was he the Christ, but that the Christ would have to suffer. Uh, he would be arrested. He, he would suffer. He would die. He would be raised again. To Peter especially, this is not welcome news. In fact, Peter very quickly says to Jesus that that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> Uh, Peter essentially says that if he has anything to do with it, uh, this won't happen. He, he will keep this from happening. This will never be. Jesus need not die. I think Peter here sees himself, in essence, as kind of the, the protector of the plan of God, of God's Messiah, and he's going to step in, whatever it takes, and make sure nothing happens to Jesus. And if you recall, as we follow through the gospel, we'll see soon, that's exactly what Peter attempts to do. When they come to arrest Jesus, he's the one who pulls out the sword. He's the one who wants to fight. But this was not the plan of God. And Jesus makes this clear to Peter. He tells him this is not the plan. In fact, he says to Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter wanted to do what you and I so often wanted to do. He wanted to be in control. But what we find in that passage, what we find in today's passage, is that you cannot follow Jesus and remain in control of your life. And so it is my intention today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to seek to convince you, to convince myself, that we need to relinquish control. And I don't know where you're at in your life, but I know my struggles, and I know many of your struggles, and this is the struggle. We want to be in charge. We want to call the shots. And as much as we may profess to love Jesus, seek to worship Jesus today, so often we want to be the person on the throne. But Jesus says we can't have two masters. And he tells us very clearly what it looks like for him to be on the throne in today's text. And so we're going to look at a fairly brief passage, but a very full passage today. As we pick up now in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read. We stand because this is the holy word of God. and This is what God says to us. 
Picking up in verse 23, Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he, Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You would pray with me. Father, it is not only hard <laughs> to relinquish control, it is quite impossible, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, for us to, to truly step down off the throne of our lives and, and to have another sit on that throne. But Lord, help us to understand what that call is. Help us to understand a, a brief and yet a very full and costly call that Jesus puts before us. Help us, Lord, to love you and love others and to learn what that means as we walk through your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sandy and I were recalling this week just how much time we've spent sitting in children's hospitals and in waiting rooms and in those situations, and some of you have faced this yourself, just as you've waited, you start reading all kinds of things, all kinds of articles, news headlines that maybe you wouldn't otherwise sit and spend much attention to. You've just got time. And doing that not long ago, I came across an, an article on terms and conditions. <laughs> this article was essentially talking about in, in today's world, uh, where so many of us have uh, digital, a digital thumbprint, a digital life where we're, we're looking at things on our phone and on a computer and, and so much of what we receive comes digitally. Uh, this article was about how much we are agreeing to in order to do that. And so I would imagine pretty much everybody in this room knows what it is to, to have a, a message on your phone that says, hey, you need, to, you need to update this or on your computer, you need to install this. Uh, before you can do that, you, you need to look through these terms and conditions, and then check that box. I have read and agreed to all of these terms and conditions. Now, I don't know about you, but I have not read all those terms and conditions. And based on this article, 97% of us have not read all those terms and conditions. In fact, according to this article, if the average American read all of the terms and conditions we are asked to read, it would take us 250 hours a year over 10 days of our life, just to read all the terms of conditions. For example, it said that Microsoft was the largest one. That Microsoft update, maybe you get on computer, you know, read this to update the software, click this button. It takes over an hour just to read that one. And so what ends up happening, of course, is we don't read them, we click the button, and then later on we're surprised to know what we gave up, what privacy we don't have, all these things that happen. We, we don't really consider the cost... <laughs> We just click the button and we move on. I was thinking that in light of today's passage where Jesus essentially puts forward his terms and conditions. 
It does not take us 250 hours to read his conditions. It does not take us hours at all. It doesn't take us days, weeks. It doesn't even take us minutes. It takes about five seconds to read what Jesus puts before us and said that these are the terms and conditions, that this is what it means to follow me. And yet it's, it's a very costly term, a very costly conditions he puts before us, but there is nothing hidden in fine print. That, that there's nothing for us just to glaze over to move ahead and get to the next thing. No, Jesus puts before it very clearly, if you are going to follow me, this is what the term is. This is what the condition is. He says it very clearly in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. These are the terms. That this is what he's asking us to do. And so if you consider yourself this morning to be a follower of Jesus, that this is what God has put before you. These are the terms. If you're here today, not as a follower of Christ, perhaps you've been coming here many times, other churches many times, perhaps you've heard the gospel many times, but you've never put your faith and your trust in Christ as Lord. You are comfortable being on the throne. You want to be in charge. I'm not here to sell you on some soft offer this morning. Well, we'll just give this a chance. Now, this is a very serious consideration we're all asked to give. Are we really willing to relinquish control and have Christ sit on the throne? And so we're going to look primarily at this first verse because really the verses that follow are Jesus is saying, Here, here's what this looks like. <laughs> but, but I want us to look at these terms, these conditions, and we'll just walk through them as they are presented to us here, beginning with the first one you have there before you, Jesus calls us, point one, to deny ourselves. To deny ourselves. Again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So what does Jesus mean in saying this? Well, what does he mean when he says that we need to deny ourselves? Deny ourselves what? I mean, this is really a question that the church has been trying to answer for 2,000 years now, and people have made all types of attempts to answer this question of, of what does it truly mean to deny ourselves? What is Jesus calling us to deny? So for example, in the 4th century church, there was a, a monk named Simeon who believed that the answer to this question of self-denial was self deprivation, to, to deprive oneself, specifically, he believed what many then and still now believe, that, that in order to follow this command of Christ, we need to deprive ourselves, and primarily of all worldly things. And so an attempt to do this, he lived there in the town of Antioch, today modern-day Turkey, and he built himself a, a small, very humble structure to live in, and yet he realized very quickly, if I just build this right here in the city, outskirts of the city, people are going to bother me. I'm going to be tempted by things. And so he, he put it on a pillar. And he lived out his life on this small structure on a pillar. And many in his day believed that, that this purified him spiritually, that this indeed proved that he was a, a true follower of Jesus. He was willing to give up so much, deprive himself of so much. 
In fact, they were so inspired by him, they wanted to receive the blessing they thought he had. And so they began to gather at the foot of that pillar. They began to hold worship services and religious services at the foot of that pillar. This disturbed him. This did not remove him from the world and worldliness. And so he raised the pillar. <laughs> he lived there for 37 years until the time of his death. At that time, that pillar was nearly 80 feet in the air with a small living quarters on top of it. And as a result, the Catholic Church believes that he's a saint. In fact, there are a whole group of people in history that you can look back on that are referred to as the pillar saints who followed in Simeon's life this monastic attempt to remove oneself from our worldly pleasures and worldly things. In fact, it was around this time that the church began to recognize and celebrate the season of Lent in the 4th century. Lent being those 40 days leading up to Easter, our, our Resurrection Sunday. And the focus of that time became self-deprivation. We're to deprive ourselves of something for these 40 days. We're, we're, we're not going to indulge ourselves in something for 40 days. Why? Because we're, we're denying ourselves by depriving ourselves. I did not grow up in a, a Christian home. I didn't know anything about Lent. I, I became a follower of Jesus uh, my freshman year of college. I remember uh, that, that first Easter, Easter season, there was a, a friend that I'd met through a campus ministry, and, and I remember uh, they did celebrate Lent, and, and some others celebrated Lent. I remember going around a room and, and people talking about what they were giving up, and, and one said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have chocolate for these 40 days. Another one said, well, I'm going to go without this, and this one, I'm not going to watch TV, and, and all these things. And then whatever your thoughts on that, that's fine, but I think we're confused. I think if we're, we're confused, if we attribute what Jesus says here in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and we equate that with walking by a bakery and not going in. We equate that up saying, well, if I just remove myself and deprive myself, then I'm obeying the call of Jesus. Is this what Jesus means when he says we are to deny ourselves? And if this is what he means, then, then, then what is it we deny ourselves of? Well, what is the specific thing or the group of things? Does this mean that we all need to live monastic lives and separate from one another? Now, that will be disruptive to our Sunday morning worship if that's the case. I believe it means something else. And I believe, really, it's a simple answer, and Jesus gives it to us. Deny ourselves what? Ourselves. <laughs> He says it. We, we need to deny ourselves. There's nothing after ourselves. He's saying you and I need to deny ourselves of what? Of ourselves. Self. Our natural inclination is self-centered living. It's to pursue what we want. It's to be on the throne of our lives for us to be in charge and in control. And Jesus says, if you're truly going to follow me, you can't do that. You deny what? You deny yourself. And it's a lot more than not picking up a donut. The, the, the Christian life is not organized around a diet plan or cheat days. That, that, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying so much more. And yet it's, it's fundamental and it's somewhat simple. He's saying if you really want to follow me, Jesus says, that then you have to get off the throne of your life. You, you need to deny that. 
You can't be in charge anymore. And friends, if we seriously consider what Jesus is asking us here, that's a hard call. Because I don't know about you, but I like to be in control. In fact, I'll let you in on just a little bit about myself. I think I know better than most people. I think I've got better ways. And maybe that's just my struggle, or maybe you know what that's like, you know. Whether you're in a situation and people are trying to figure out something and they come up with an idea and you're sitting there saying, well, that's not going to work. You know. or, or maybe you have experienced that conversation. Maybe not a conversation, maybe more of an argument with someone, a spouse, a family member, a friend, where you're, you're just trying to help them understand. You know better than they do. They're wrong. You're, you're right. You, you know how to do it better. I mean, isn't so much of our life this very struggle that we think we know the best? And sometimes it's not a matter of we think our way is right and someone else's way is wrong. Sometimes it's just a matter of they're not moving fast enough. And my struggle is I think God moves too slow. I want him to move faster. I want him to move in ways that I perceive to be better. And I can go down the rabbit hole, and maybe you go down this rabbit hole. Well, God, if you really love me or this person, wouldn't you do this? God, let me help you right now. Yeah. And so we become that obnoxious backseat driver. Are you watching your speed? You know you need to turn here, don't you? As if God needs us for her anything, especially to be a backseat driver. Remember the context here. The context is Jesus has made this confession. He has said, essentially, when Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter essentially says, well, I say you're Lord. And I say you're in charge. And I say you're the Messiah. And I say your plan's the right plan. But what happens right after that is Peter denies Jesus' plan. Jesus says, okay, Peter, okay, disciples, here's the plan. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised. Which, that's glorious when you really sit back and consider it. I mean, do you ever consider if we're singing about what it means that Christ has defeated sin and death on our behalf? What a glorious thing that is. But Peter doesn't even get there. Peter, I don't think, gets past the point where Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. And Peter, I think, probably well-intentioned like many of us, we don't want the people we love to suffer. We don't want to see them go through bad things. And so Peter looks at Jesus and he loves Jesus. He says, no, Jesus, that's not how it's going to happen. I'm going to take control here. I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen that way. But what is Peter saying? Peter is saying, Jesus, let, let me get back on the throne here for a minute. Let, let me help you. Jesus says no. And so now it's, it's in that very context. Jesus has just talked about, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And I think the indication here very clearly is I'm going to the cross because then he talks about a cross. Peter, if you really want to follow me, it's time for you to stop. 
stopping it's not time for you to get off the throne peter i, I know what you said on the boat I know the zeal you've had as you went out into the cities and you, you cast out demons in my name and, and you heal people in my name. Peter, Peter, I love you. And I've got, man, I have a plan for you. But it's not going to be the plan you thought it was going to be. And my plan, Jesus is saying to Peter, is not, not the plan you thought because the disciples here and so many in the religious community in this time, they were looking to Jesus as the Messiah. They were looking to him to have a crown. They were looking to him to, to reign then and now. They were looking to the kingdom to come for, for their Roman oppressors to be cast off, for, for the Israelites, for the, the, the Jewish people to be raised up, and Jesus will reign over them, and it'll be wonderful, and it's what we've been longing for, and for centuries and centuries, and we've been praying for it, and now it's going to happen. The crown's coming. And Jesus says, no, a, a cross is coming. The crown will come, but first, the cross. And if you really want to follow me, Peter, if you really want to follow me and be a disciple, if, if you today, if we today truly want to follow Jesus, then we need to understand this. And we have to get down off that throne. We have to deny ourselves of ourselves that these rights we feel that we are endowed with, that we get to make the decisions and we get to call the shots. And then point two, Jesus calls us to take up, take up our cross daily. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And, and I think just like we see throughout the history of the church, confusion around what it means to deny ourselves, there's certainly confusion around what it means to take up our cross. <laughs> Years ago, I was part of a, a panel of, of pastors uh, speaking to a, a Christian ministry class at Campbellsville University. And I remember... After the class, these students came up and interacted with us, and there was one particular student that as he came up, I couldn't help but notice he was carrying a, a four-foot cross on his shoulder. I didn't really think much of it. I mean, it's a you know, Christian school. He probably you know, didn't really think much of it. But, but then I began to talk to him, and I, I asked him about the cross. And he said, well, Jesus said it real clear. We need to take up our cross. I mean, he didn't say it with a grin on his face. He, he wasn't joking. He, um, he, this is what he believed. He, he was carrying his cross. That, that day as I left the campus, I saw him walking across the campus. He was carrying his cross. I don't see any four-foot crosses this morning. Does that mean we're, we're disobeying what Jesus says? Is that what Jesus means here? I don't think many of us think that, but I think the confusion for us can be how we refer to this. Because for us so often, we, we think of carrying our cross as, you know, when, when things don't go our way or, or when, when bad things happen to us. And we'll use this terminology. Well, you know, everybody's got their cross to bear. You know, I'm, I'm bearing my cross. I remember years ago, situation where pastor was sharing about 
you know, hardships and trials and suffering and what it means to carry one's cross. And we got a very lengthy email afterwards from a, a church member who wanted to share about their, their cross they were carrying. And they talked about this hardship and this trial and this suffering they'd endured. And, and essentially at the end of the email, it was an ingrown toenail. I've had ingrown toenails. I don't like ingrown toenails, but I don't think Jesus is talking here about that. I don't think you think that's what he's talking about. But, but I do think at times we can kind of equate misunderstandings because when, when we think about the cross today, when you just hear me say cross today, you, you think about that, that, that image, that, that, that cross we have there, you in this room, Many of you probably have a, a necklace with a, a cross on it. Maybe you have something on your card. It's got a, a cross on it. You know, uh, Caroline, and, and thank you for doing this. So many of you have written cards to her, and those cards have had crosses on them. It's almost become kind of just this, just, just a you know a thing to us. And what is cross? You know, here's a, a verse, and here's a polite message, and here's a cross, and. But in this context, in this day, in this age, when Jesus said to his disciples, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. That there was a very specific, gruesome image that would come from that. That they would immediately know, Jesus is speaking here of, of the unbearable picture of a crucifixion. You think about in our day and age where we still, you know, we, we have executions and these aren't public events. They're normally private events. There's some people from the state there and there, there may be a, a few family members of the victim there and a small group of people there. And, and we don't, it's not common practice for us to witness something like that. And what they witness often is a, a needle in an arm and it looks like somebody goes to sleep. But what would have been on public display for Jesus and his followers would have been the unspeakable horrors of seeing a person slowly die an excruciating death. About 20 years before Jesus made this statement to the disciples, there was a, a man that we know of historically as Judas of Galilee. And the oppression we've talked about that you had during this time, these Roman oppressors on God's people, so often there were revolts, and, and Judas of Galilee was one who led a revolt some 20 years before this. They went into a, a central town there in Galilee, Sephoris, and they raided the Roman armory, and thousands under the leadership of Judas of Galilee, they took up arms, and they attacked their Roman oppressors, and they failed. And to make an example of them, the Roman authorities not only burned their city and their families and their belongings to the ground, 2,000, 2,000 of these soldiers lined the roads around Galilee on crosses and died slow, excruciating deaths. Jesus and his disciples, many of them would have been teenagers. And they would have been walking from place to place. And this is what they would have seen. This is what it meant to take up a cross. It meant to die. 
their picture, their image would have been of a, a rebel against the Romans, dragging, as was their practice, their own cross to the place of their execution where they would die and they would not come back. That's what it means to take up a cross. It means very simply, you die. Do you have no rights? Do you have no say? You don't sit on the throne. You are put to death. As one commentator I read wrote, they, they said it this way, when a man from one of their villages referring to Jesus and the disciples took a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He did not look back. To take up one's cross meant the, the utmost of self-denial because it meant death itself. And so Jesus here is saying, and again, consider what Peter's doing here. Peter's saying to Jesus, my plan's better than your plan, Jesus. That's not how it's going to be. And Jesus is saying to Peter, no, Peter, it's not just a matter here of choosing my plan over your plan. Your, your plan gets buried. It's not cataloged for future reference. But we don't come to God with you know, here's my plan, and God, here's your plan, and as long as your plan's better than my plan, it pays more than my plan, it does better than my plan, it helps me get healthier than my plan, I'm good with your plan, but when your plan doesn't do what I want the plan to be, I'm going back to my plan. No, he says our plan gets thrown in the garbage. It gets burned in the fire. There's no more our plan versus God's plan. We, we, we die to it. And that picture Jesus gives here of a cross, he's saying that, that, that you've got to die. And, and, and friends, we, we celebrate that day. We associate death with mourning and grieving, and there is mourning and grieving, but, but with this kind of death, I mean, don't, don't glaze over the seriousness and the significance of a person going in that water and dying you are buried with Christ in death. You are raised to walk in a new life. And that's what Jesus is calling us to here. So the question for you, the question for me is, have we really died to ourselves? Have we thrown the old plan, our plan, into the fireplace? Or is it right there on the bookshelf, easily accessible, so we can pull it out when, you know, well, God, I think you skipped a chapter here. You're just too slow. I, I can handle this one. I know how to deal with this one. Or have we died to ourselves? And again, think about the context with Peter. Because maybe you hear that and you're thinking this morning, no, I haven't. And I struggle with this and I want to be in control and it's a constant wrestling match and I'm not worthy and maybe I can't follow Jesus. Well, just consider the company you're in and God's word this morning. I mean, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, if you really want to follow me, then you need to deny yourself. And Peter, you know, he's the zealous one. And so in this moment, you can kind of picture Peter going, oh, yeah, got that, done that, going to do that, got this, Jesus. I would protect you, Jesus. I'd never deny you, Jesus. He denies him. I mean, Jesus goes on here to talk about whoever's ashamed of me and of my words and of, 
of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. What's Peter going to do? He's going to be ashamed. He's going to have an opportunity. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, how do I transition to the gospel? I mean, it's real clear there. Peter's got every opportunity to share about the glory of God. As Jesus is on his way to the cross, he denies it. But I'm so thankful he did. Because we, we get a picture of the sanctification process here. It helps us then to rightly understand what Jesus is not saying here is that if you've not achieved perfection, you're not worthy. This is a process. <laughs> it's a long process. It's a sanctifying process. It's a process that doesn't come to fruition fully until we're on the other side of eternity. And between this day and that, we will struggle with wanting to be in control, just as we see Peter struggle. And yet, Peter will finish well, and by God's grace, we will too. But Jesus refers to even salvation as a, a past, present, and future. You have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. He who endures until the end will be saved. Does that, does that mean we don't have security in our salvation? No. He's saying this is a, a process through which we, it's not sufficient. Just to walk an aisle in a church and fill out a membership card at church and then go live on the throne of your life until the day you die. And then people look at you, well, you know, he was a member of such and such. No. Jesus says, if you really want to follow me, then, then and every day of your life is a day of dying to yourself. Of getting off the throne and of trusting in Jesus. And as we do this, when we do this, he says, this is what it means to follow him. This is the third and final thing. Jesus calls us to follow him. What does that look like? Again, he, he tells us right here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is the process of following him. And then he gives us a picture. Here's what it looks like, he says. Here's what you need to consider. Here's the choice before us. Whoever would save his life, He'll lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man? He gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the Holy Angels. He, he gives us a picture of what he's talking about here, of what it means to truly follow Jesus. The question for us today is, are we truly following Or do we have some bizarre misconception of what it means to follow Jesus? Because there are many out there. I've shared with you my testimony many times. I was a freshman in college. Somebody presented the gospel to me. I put my trust in Christ. And from that day forward, I began to attempt and many times struggled and many times failed, but I began to attempt to tell others about Jesus. And I remember real specifically, I lived... As a freshman in college, I was in this uh, kind of dorm set up where I had sweet mates. And so there was this group of eight of us that lived kind of centrally in this. You know, we all shared a bathroom. You get to know people pretty well. Then. So there, there was a guy, Chip, that lived in my suite. And so I began to pray for Chip because by all outward appearances of his life, he was not a follower of Jesus at all. And so I just began to pray for him, and I was nervous. And I'm sure you know what this is like. You know you need to talk to somebody about the gospel. You're nervous about it, and you, you know, 
we just make all these attempts, and then so much time goes by that then it's like, well, I haven't talked to them yet, and that's not going to seem like it's very important because they haven't talked about it. But I, I finally prayed and, and, and just took that step of faith one evening. Uh, we were having dinner in the dining hall, and I started to talk to Chip about Jesus. Started to talk to him about, you know, the, 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 the change in my life and how Christ had changed me and talked to him about the gospel. And I'll never forget as I was talking to him, you know, Chip, just, he just kept smiling and shaking his head. He's like, he's like Richard, man, I've, I've known this since I was a kid. Man, you're, you're just learning this stuff. That's great. But I've, I've known this forever. I'm a Christian. I'm like, what? You're, yeah. Yeah. He told me what church he was a member of. Told me about how he had been an officer in all these different positions in his youth group and gone all these mission trips. Yeah, I'm a Christian. But then he said this. He said, but, but you got to understand for me, he said, I, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been a good Christian. I decided when I came to college, what I was going to do is, I'm, you know, I love Jesus, but Jesus, he's, he's not in a shoebox right now. He's in my closet. I, I'm just going to do my own thing for the next few years. And when I get out of college, I'm going to take that shoebox back out. And I'm going to do everything Jesus tells me to do then. But right now, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think what he shared with me then, while people haven't said it that way, I think that's what I've experienced often in the life of the church, is, is people who want to shoebox Jesus. They, they, they like the idea that he's close by, and he's there in the closet, and whenever they need him, they can just pull out that box and open it up. But essentially, whether they say it or not, whether you say it or not, whether I say it or not, we live day to day that way, and we don't really take the shoebox out until a crisis hits. And until something happens that is outside of our control that we can't handle anymore. And then it's like, where is the shoebox? I got to find it. We're scrambling through the closet. We're throwing everything. And what's this and this? And oh, there it is. I finally found it. Oh, Jesus, I need your help. Jesus makes no offer to be in a shoebox. He says very clearly to us, if we want to follow him, we have to die. We have to get off the throne. We have to relinquish control. And whatever silly notions we have that Jesus can somehow be this auxiliary support in our lives, our, our backup generator of sorts, we can just kind of tap into him when we're wiped out or exhausted or have no other options, that is not what the gospel tells us. The call of the gospel for you and I this morning is simply this. You've got to deny yourself. Die to yourself. If you truly want to follow Him. And so there is a throne in each one of our lives. And the question today for us is who is sitting on that throne? And Jesus makes it clear. It's not a couch. <laughs> it's not a love seat. There's no room for two. You can't serve two masters, he says. And what he's saying there is, is whatever it is, something else, money, you, no, there, there's room for one. And if it's not Christ this morning, friend, why is it? Well, what else do you need? I mean, God could put before you terms and conditions that would take you the rest of the day to read, but 
We don't need that, do we? I mean, he said it plainly and he said it bluntly. We need to die to ourselves and get off the throne. Verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? We'll talk about that next week. Let me pray for us.